Please bow with me in prayer. Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, for those of you that uh, are visiting today or just coming back, some of our part-timers are returning, we are continuing on our fall sermon series, and we've arrived at Romans chapter 7, and I'm sure some of you sitting there listening to Romans chapter 7 are saying, what is this reading? I, what is this saying? I'm just going to wait till Greg talks about it because I can't understand this at all. And I, and I actually saw a couple of people just zoning out. I saw a couple of people shutting their eyes and uh, tuning it out. But Romans 7 is a complicated, tongue-twisting reading. And it is difficult to understand unless you slow down and unless you unpack it. But let me talk a little bit about the background uh, first of all, Romans chapters 1 through 8, which is what this series is about, is known as the gospel according to Paul. And we've been un- unpacking the gospel according to Paul, and in particular, uh, the last two chapters, Romans 6 and Romans 7, is talking about, okay, now that we have this gospel, well, what's the place of the law now that we have this gospel? Because Paul is writing into a situation where the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians are vying for the leadership of the church in Rome. And the Jewish Christians are saying, well, you know, where's the place of the law? And the Gentile Christians are saying, do we really need the law at all? And, you know, shouldn't we be under the law? Well, do we really need the law because... You know, if grace abounds because of Jesus Christ, why don't we just keep sinning? That was one of the arguments in Romans chapter 6. So we don't need the law. And so there's all this discussion and argument about the law, and two errors were emerging. One was legalism, and the other one was, let's just keep on sinning. Why change it all? And those were two extreme errors. But they were trying to figure out the place of the law. And we still see this going on in the church today. You know, because you will hear Christians talk about, well, the law, that's an Old Testament idea. And, you know, the New Testament is all about grace. So why do we even have to bother about the law and talking about the law? And yet even Christians have a hard time letting go of the Ten Commandments, which is part of the law. So that's part of the discussion here when we get into uh, Romans chapter 7. And Paul even starts by saying, I want to talk to those of you that really are talking about and know of the law. But then he takes this slight tangent and uses an analogy that would be familiar with people who know the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's the analogy to marriage. Right? 
Everybody's familiar with marriage. And let me just take it this way first. That a relationship with God is like a marriage. We see that in the Old Testament, the book of Hosea. The whole book of Hosea is like that. Jesus refers to it, uses that as an analogy. The bride and the bridegroom. The book of Revelation, the church is the bride of Christ and he's the bridegroom. We see it over and over again. That it's meant to be this intimate relationship. That it's a pledge of love and that you build your life around this person. That's what happens when you come to the altar. That you're saying, I'm going to build my life around this person. One of the lines that's used in the marriage ceremony is, forsaking all others. Right? Now what would happen if, at the marriage you say, well, you know, it might be that I just want to keep dating other people. How would that work? Either the marriage wouldn't take place, or the one might kill the other. But that's not really a marriage. Or you come and you pledge your love to one another and you say, I'm going to build our life together. And then you don't really spend any time together. I'll see you once in a while. You know, maybe we'll get together sometime. That's not a marriage. That a marriage really is, you completely change the orientation of your life from being a single person to building your life around the other person and you make your plans together. You build your future. You build a life together. The two become one flesh. And that's what a relationship with the Lord is meant to be like. That it's a love relationship where you, you now are building your life together. And so he uses this analogy. And it takes work to build a marriage, to build intimacy. In order to grow deeper. It doesn't just happen. And sometimes, in fact, it's a battle. In today's culture, that so much is working against a marriage and a family. There's so many trials and temptations and challenges. It takes work. And that's what Paul's referring to here. You know, I've seen scholars who actually have written that Romans chapter 7 is about his pre-conversion. That this battle between, you know, him wrestling with the flesh and living with the spirit... And I'm thinking, are these scholars who are talking about this, have they ever been married? Because making a marriage last a lifetime is a battle. It's a challenge. To get over some of the hurdles and challenges that you face in life. To continue to be loving and build intimacy and stay strong. In fact, if you look at the Greek, 
verses 7 through 24, the tense of the verbs are all present tense. Which means Paul's saying this battle between the flesh and the spirit, life in the flesh and life in the spirit, is an ongoing battle. It's a constant battle. And that what he's saying is this is something that continues. That you need to fight for. So as this chapter unfolds, and he's talking about this back and forth, he's saying, understand, this can only be done walking in the Spirit, walking by the Spirit. This cannot be done in your own strength. This cannot be done in your own flesh. You must be united to Christ. Yes, there is a once and for all. Let's, let's move from the marriage to theology. Yes, there is a once for all when you come to the altar. Justification by faith. That's the theological term. When you come to Christ and you give your life to Christ and you say, Yes, Lord, and He becomes your Savior. That's the marriage. But then the next step, theologically speaking, is sanctification, the process of becoming holy, the process of becoming Christ-like. That is an ongoing battle. That is saying, yes, Lord, every day. And that's the challenge of our lives. And we can't do that alone. That's like the marriage that requires ongoing communication. Where we spend time with Him every day in prayer and in His Word. The ongoing commitment. Renewing the commitment every day. The deepening of the love every day. Life in the Spirit. That we choose every day. So then he resumes this discussion about the law that he began in Romans chapter 6. And, he's, and he says... What do you think? Is the law a good thing or not? He even goes as far to say, is the law sin? Well, let's look at the Sermon on the Mount first. What does Jesus say about the law? Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law. Understand, I've come to fulfill the law. His very first sermon. As he's come out. As he's talking about grace. As he's talking about life in the faith. As he's challenging the Pharisees and the Sadducees and their legalism and their misunderstanding and misapplication of the law. The first thing he says is don't misunderstand. I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to show you how to live it. I've come to show you what it means to walk by grace, to live by grace, to live in this love relationship with the Father, but then live according to the law in righteousness, a holy life. Paul, Paul the Pharisee, Paul the legalist, Paul the one who persecuted the church, is converted. Acts chapter 8. 
Paul goes out for eight or nine years. He was an expert in the law as a young man. He was a rising star. For eight or nine years, he goes out away from the leadership of the church and he studies and restudies the scriptures. And he learns them in a different mindset with the gospel of Jesus Christ in mind. And when he comes back, as he would recount in Philippians chapter 3, he says, every bit of self-righteousness I had in my mind, having thought I earned my way to heaven, I count as refuse because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Now I understand the place of the law. It's so that I would seek to live by His grace. That this law would become a guide to me. That I'm not earning my way. So the law is not sin. The law is not evil. The law is a guide. The law is good. The law comes out of God's love for me because it comes out of His person. Let me give you an analogy. See, here's where the law is problematic for us, so you understand. The law is good, but it's problematic for us. Here's the analogy. It's kind of mundane, it's kind of simple, but it'll make sense to you. Halloween candy. Halloween candy is good. But, when Halloween candy sits around, and you know it's there, it becomes a problem. See, there it is. Halloween candy in and of itself is good. Well, personally, I think so. But it points out the temptation. That's what the law does. I love peanut butter cookies. I make peanut butter cookies regularly. Peanut butter cookies are good. In and of themselves. But they can become problematic because they're there. See, that's what Paul's saying. The law is good, the law is there. But see, the law points out the sin, the law points out the potential temptation. That's what Paul's saying. It reminds us of the potential dangers that are out there because of our flesh, because of the desires in our heart, because we are sinful beings. That's why the law is problematic. That's why people in the church were saying, you know the problem is the law is the problem. No, the law is not the problem. We're the problem. Because we're sinners. That's what Paul's saying. See, we have a way of corrupting that which is good because of our desires. That's the problem. I've used these analogies over and over again, but we might have some people here that have never heard it. Let me use a couple of other ones. The Internet, by and large, is good. There's a lot of good uses for it. What are the two most popular uses for the Internet to this day? 
If you've been here a while, you know what they are. What are they? Pornography and gambling. Exactly. The two most popular uses of the Internet. Isn't that amazing? A good thing that gets corrupted. Nuclear power, right? Nuclear power is a good thing, but then what happens? Gets turned into bombs. You know, let me give you another example of what can happen with the Internet and cell phone service. We, we have an AT&T account, right? This past week, our AT&T account got hacked. And someone charged an iPhone to our AT&T account to the tune of $800. Now, anyone who knows me knows it was not me. Okay? Right? That was no problem to get out of that one. Okay? But that's an example. Cell phones are good. Computers are good. But there are evil people in the world that steal, that hack. That's the problem. That we have a tendency to turn that which is good and use it for evil purposes. That's what Paul's saying here. The law is good. What else is good? Relationships are good. People. We love people. But guess what happens? We use people. We gossip. We slander. We put people down. We use people for human trafficking. We use people to get ahead. We use people in relationships for sex. Even though relationships are good. See how that happens. The law is good. But it's sin in us that corrupts it. You know, Adam and Eve, they were told, this tree, don't eat of it. And Satan comes along and says, you know what? If you eat that fruit, here's what, here's what the problem is. God doesn't, God doesn't want you to eat because you'll know good from evil. Guess what? Satan didn't lie about that. He was right. They ended up learning of evil in an unhealthy way, unhelpful way. They learned the difference between life and death in an un unhelpful, unhealthy way. They would be the God of their destiny because they chose the wrong way. See how we corrupt things. God gives us the choice. God gives us the choice. So the law is good. God gives it to us to guide us. Because He loves us. It comes out of His nature because He's holy. But what ends up happening is we diminish ourselves because we misuse it. 
because of the flesh of who we are. You know, it's interesting. I have a friend who is a retired lawyer in San Antonio. Retired lawyer who has a lot of time on his hands. He uses at least some of it for good. And um, every day he sends out this thing he calls Christian Inspiration. And this week he happens to send me a couple of different renderings of the passage in Matthew 5 that I happened to choose for this week for the gospel reading back in summer, which I thought was really well-timed from the Lord. And he wrote, and he wrote me, and what he wrote was the rendering of Matthew's gospel and the message. Let me read it to you. Don't suppose for a minute that I've come to demolish the scripture either God's law or the prophets. I'm not here to demolish, but to complete. I'm going to put it all together, pull it all together in a vast panorama. Law is more real and lasting than the stars in the sky and the ground at your feet. Long after the stars burn out and the earth wears out, God's law will be alive and working. Trivialize even the smallest item in God's law and you will only have trivialized yourself. Isn't that interesting? When you diminish God's law, when you try to say, uh, we don't have to obey that, we don't have to do that, you trivialize yourself. You diminish yourself. God gives the law to direct us how to live because he wants to give us dignity. Because he loves us. When we sin, we take away our own dignity. Psalm 8. Psalm 8 talks about God's incredible creation. And what are we when you consider the stars and the planets and the sun and the moon? What are we? And yet God has made us a little lower than the angels. God wants to give us dignity. And when we choose contrary to his way, we take it away. We belittle ourselves. The law is good. That's what Paul's saying. That's what Jesus is saying. So we have to choose life in the flesh or life in the spirit. See, life in the flesh, good Star Wars analogy, takes us to the dark side. It takes us to the dark side. That's what it does. It drags us down. It drags those around us down. And we don't have the capability to diagnose the problem effectively. And we don't have the solution. We're short-sighted. Our human sight is not capable. Why do we have MRIs? Why do we have CAT scans? Why do we have x-rays? Because we can't see. We can't plumb the depths of the ocean. We can't plumb the depths of outer space. We need microscopes and telescopes because we can't see. It's the same thing with the human condition. That's why we need the Spirit. Because we can't see the depth of our own problem. And we can't, we don't have the power to choose. We don't have the willpower. We don't have the way. 
in and of ourselves, we will choose life in the flesh. And God wants to give us the power and the ability to choose His way. You know, it's interesting. Paul 81 times uses the word flesh. And most often it means negative. Sometimes it means neutral. And if you study his use of body and flesh in Romans 6 and Romans 7, there's a continual downward thrust of body and flesh. This body of sin, this body of death, life in the flesh, and there's this downward spiral that goes. And he's trying to say, choose, choose life in the Spirit. It's our choice. And he's trying to say, God wants to give you life in the Spirit. And there's a battle within. Yes, there's all kinds of temptation outside yourself. Yes. There's all kinds of trials. There's all kinds of challenges. The culture would draw you away. Other people might try to draw you away. But the battle ultimately is internal. It's a spiritual battle. Read Ephesians 6. But God wants to give you life, life in the Spirit, that you're not capable of in and of yourself. You know, every decision you make ultimately comes down to a faith decision. When it comes to making these choices. And there's a wonderful verse although some of you might not think it's too wonderful, in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the faith chapter. And Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Guess why? Because whatever doesn't proceed from faith is going to be self-centered choices. You will choose that which serves you. You will choose that which serves your flesh, which pleases you. See, the first and great commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbors yourself. That is meant to be our motivation. And we can only do that when we walk by the Spirit, when we live in the Spirit, when we're empowered by the Spirit, when we make these holy choices. James, Jesus' brother, says, faith without works is dead. And the only way that we can live these works is when we're empowered by the Spirit. God has to work in our heart for that to happen. And the only way that that will happen is if we have a soft heart, not a hardened heart. And the more you walk by the flesh, or the more you walk according to legalism, which is the other fallacy, you will have a hardened heart. The Pharisees walked by legalism. And when we live a sinful life without regard to the Lord, we will develop a hardened heart. Those two extremes. And what Paul is advocating, walk by faith, walk in the Spirit, and learn to have a softened heart. How do we get there? How do we get there? Verse 24 is the key. Verse 24. 
Paul cries out a victory cry. Don't mistake it as despair. It's a victory cry. Wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? He is basically saying, I've come to the end of myself. I can't do this. When you empty yourself, that's when you win. It's like people in AA. That's when you begin to win. When you recognize the war is over, because Jesus won the battle on the cross, that's when you win. You know, during the Second World War, Berlin fell. The war was over. The battles kept going for weeks, even months. Japan surrendered. The battles in the South Seas kept going on for weeks and months. But the war was over. The war is over. Jesus won the victory on the cross. The battles continue. Is the war over in your life? Have you come to the place where you say, I can't do this. Jesus has done it for me on the cross. I recognize that. And you empty yourself because you recognize you can't do it. And you say, I choose you. The battles are going to continue, trust me. It's a daily walk. It's a daily giving up. It's a daily choosing. It's a daily emptying of yourself and being filled with His Spirit. But that's when Paul came to the end of his self is when he said, wretched man that I am. That's when he got honest. It's the same cry that he said in Romans 3.23. None are righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it's God who initiated. When he sent his son Jesus, it's God who provides. Because we can't. And the daily battles, it's not just the big sins. It's the little ones. It's the cookies. It's the Halloween candy. It's not just killing your spouse. For Paul... For Paul, it was probably a hasty tongue, premature judgment, resentment of the other apostles. What is it for you? That causes you maybe to gossip or slander? Get angry? Stressed out?
See, it's not just the biggies. It's the daily living. It's the living for the Lord and loving other people and serving other people. That's what it is. Every day. Every day you have a choice. To fight the battle. To live in the Spirit, walk by the Spirit. And not to live in the flesh. The war's over. It's the war over in you. That's why Jesus went to the cross. Is the war over in you? Because the battles go on until you die. But the victory is ours in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we live in a culture... where we are constantly assaulted. The assaults are on the outside. But the battle is on the inside. The trials and temptations. The challenges. But the war has been won. You sent your son to die on the cross in our place for our sin. To empower us, to change us, to make us holy. That we might walk by grace. To live by your spirit. To become like your son. Lord God, I pray that in the midst of the battles that we face every day, externally, internally, that we might see your law as a guide that comes out of your holiness, that comes out of your love. That we might see your word as a guide. That we might see prayer as a gift. Lord, help us to walk by your Spirit. To be an encouragement to one another. And to glorify your name as we fight the battles. For the war is won. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. In whose name we pray. Amen.